for May 26th, 2014. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 308. Liberté, égalité, mutanité. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, uh, in a dystopian future where... I got nothing. I'm Matt Rather, uh, and here with the panel to overthink X-Men Days of Future Past. That's right. Uh, four panelists, four out of four, have seen the movie. So this Woo-hoo! is this is a... Uh, Frank, a I guess, right? It a, is the brightest timeline. <laughs> <laughs> This is an unprecedented confluence of preparedness in overthinking a <laughs> podcast history, and uh, we're just delighted to share it with you. So we should say right off the bat, spoiler warning starts now. Spoilers for X-Men Days of Future Past. Um, so uh, in, in the film, it is revealed that uh, John F. Kennedy was a mutant. And that Magneto was saving him uh, instead of killing him, but got, uh, got jammed up and got uh, imprisoned for killing him in, a, in an awesome secret underground plastic lair, a uh, hundred stories. I like, that, I like that, uh, that detail because that's, you know, that's a thousand feet, give or take, um, which, you know, I don't know. Are there any geologists uh, in our audience who can tell us how thick the crust of the earth is? And when you get to, like, mantle, you know. It's I, not a thousand no, feet. No, it's, it's a lot deeper than a thousand <laughs> feet. But you're getting, I mean, you're getting to, like, you're drilling through the, what, the, like, the water table or something, right? And, like, into, I don't know, oil deposit, mineral natural gas deposits or something i don't know what's i don't know what's there so if anyone knows the geology of of um of uh where's the pentagon virginia uh you know write in write in and let us know it's podcast overthinking it.com so so there he is for the crime of having tried to save the president of the united states what panel was john f kennedy's mutant power it's never revealed in the film, but uh, I'm dying to know, and so it's your question of the week. JFK, a mutant, what could he do? Uh, we're delighted to have in the alphabet someone before Pete Fenzel, largely because it gives me the opportunity to drink. So drink now. It is Matt Belinky. Uh, you know, here's, here's the thing. I, I think this is going to be a, a, controversial, um, a controversial answer. I think that he could see other wavelengths of light. Beyond the visual spectrum, I think he could see infrared. I think he could see X-rays. I think he could he could see. I, I, those are the only two non-visual spectrum wavelengths of light that I know. And I don't think it's a particularly useful power. And I kind of like that 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 his power is not like an extra twenty electoral votes. His power is is completely useless to his chosen profession. That he didn't go into to science or something, you know. That, and so that he didn't have to wait in line for for uh, his turn with the uh, the equipment. Um, but he is he is in fact a mutant. And even though you know, I mean, it is interesting that mutations from what we've seen in X Men can be virtually anything. And yet it, it just so happens that most of them seem to have some combat usefulness. They seem to lend themselves well to uh, you know a, a fight. Or sort of like you know a, a large scale, uh, let's say an action movie type scenario. Uh, but you know it's it's completely possible that you could have the power of being able to like see uh, X rays uh, with your with your um, your unaided eyes and still uh, choose to go into a life of public service. So that's that that that's my. Uh, <laughs> That's my theory about the whole uh, the whole Kennedy thing. It's too bad, too bad that the the anti mutant uh, Illuminati had to, uh, had to had had to take him out before before his time. Mm. Good uh, uh, good thought there, Matt. Pete Fenzel, you're next in the alphabet. Drink because Penzel Fenzel is second. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> to answer this question, I think you have to raise the question of why he would choose to be president and why he would choose to be a politician in the first place because most of the mutants that we meet go into hiding because they recognize they are 
uh, unique. They fear that they will be outcasts. They seek obscurity, right? Even when they're powerful, they seek obscurity. It's never, you know, the juggernaut, you know, doesn't hang out, although he's not really a mutant, but he is in, in X-Men, the now, the now discarded X-Men uh, movie continuity. He is a mutant. Uh, but, you know, he sort of hides out and commits petty crimes and whatnot. But, um, so, my, my theory is, is in the uh, Kennedy quote, we do these things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Which is that Kennedy has passive powers of charisma and persuasion, where he becomes more attractive to people and more influential over them, the more difficult a thing he is currently attempting to do. <laughs> so, so he has to, in order to maximize the effectiveness of his power, he has to seek out the most difficult tasks possible. Which is why uh, he became president, right? Which is why he, he, uh, he also... Uh, started the Cuban Missile Crisis and decided to pursue a course of brinksmanship that would potentially lead to nuclear war. It's why he founded the Peace Corps, because his future plans were to personally go to all the Peace Corps locations and personally try to solve all the problems of all the peoples living in these poverty-stricken areas of the world. Um, Yeah, and and it's just... Basically, the assassins got to him when he was at his most vulnerable, which was when he was riding in a comfy Cadillac. Uh, when it was quite easy, and he's just waving at everybody, and everything's fine. Was it a Cadillac? Was Kennedy riding in a Cadillac? Well, actually, me in the comments with the make and model of the car, because I'm not going to Google it right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's also why he, he seduced Marilyn Monroe. Um, and it's also why he, he, uh, he created all those crazy conspiracies that uh, Kevin Costner found in the JFK movie, because he wanted he set up giant conspiracies of people to try to assassinate him in order to amplify his own mutant powers. Of difficulty. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, if there were a word, if you could describe it, uh, if you could describe it in a word, it's like persuasion, but it's it's more than persuasion. It's uh, uh, I don't know, words are words are failing me, but um, it's, it's a crisis risma. It's like <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Uh, that is Pete Fenzel. Uh, we are honored to have on the podcast, infrequent but much beloved podcaster Shane Wolofsky. Oh, thank you. Hi, everyone. Hi. Um, So I was thinking about this idea of um, mutant genetics, and I don't know if it was proven in any of the movies that uh, the mutant genes uh, tend to run in families because they're genes, right? But I don't remember seeing many siblings, but I'm now thinking that maybe all the Kennedys have some sort of um, mutation, and that's why they're so... Uh, big into politics, they have various ways of getting power. But I think that um, JFK, he is—I don't know—I don't think he's use. He wants to use his powers, his powers to get political power. I think he just wants to keep it on the down low because um, in the first uh, X Men prequel, First Class, he was in that too, right? Because it was the Cuban Missile Crisis. I don't remember that movie very well, but there was nothing in that movie that suggested he was using mutant powers in any way, was there? Uh, President Kennedy. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I guess not. I mean, we, you know, he would have like teleported the ships elsewhere, right? If he could have. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was seeing people's x-rays without the aid of an x-ray. <laughs> oh, maybe. So, so my theory is that he had used his mutant powers earlier, um, back when he was a younger man. And my mind goes to that famous picture of him being um, very hot with a shirt off um, in the boat when uh, he was in the, the Navy, I think. Um, I'm thinking of uh, the, the piece I did a while back on the hottest presidents of the U.S., and that was oh, yeah. the picture he had. So I'm thinking he had some sort of power having to do with the ocean, like maybe able to move waves or to have, I don't know, like whales attacking um, German ships or something. But then when he became president, um, he was like, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to leave those powers aside, which is why he was involved in land wars in Asia or the space program. Like he wanted to do anything that had nothing to do with his mutant power, nothing to do with the ocean. He was like, I'm done with this leave the mutant powers to um, everyone else in my family because I'm just going to be a regular human. But obviously it didn't work out for him. Yeah, because he had to do that blockade of Cuba single-handedly riding on those seahorses. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There will be a link uh, to Shana's piece, The Five Hottest Presidents of the United States, from all the way back in 2009. Oh, my God. (laughs) Uh, Yes, when we were were much younger. 
All I didn't even know that JFK had mutant powers back then. That I mean, I put him at number one, if I'm remembering correctly. But if I knew he had mutant powers, he would be like higher than number one. Uh, um, and uh, number three will surprise you. <laughs> I don't remember. It will surprise me. <laughs> uh, and and by the way. Um, there is a, uh, a delightful coda to that article once you uh, when you click through to it, which is the five least attractive uh, U.S. presidents, um, and uh, uh, right. So uh, so that's that's ex- that's exciting. Um, all right. So mine mine uh, involves President Kennedy's distinctive uh, distinctive Boston accent, um, which which. Uh, strikes me as as pronounced uh i guess it was back in back in the day before all of america seems to be sort of leveling its dialect to this kind of uh to this kind of primetime television speak that we all talk now um and and people still had distinctive regional accents but i i like to think it was another thing that um that president uh Kennedy had a, a, his mutant power was that his hard palate secreted delicious peanut butter and he was constantly licking delicious peanut butter and enjoying the taste of it. But it, it, uh, it accounted for, uh, some of the features of, of, um, uh, some of the features of his, uh, of his accent. Um, some of the kind of the, the, what the, the lispiness of some of the, uh, sibilance and, and stuff like that, um, that, that he was enjoying, uh, that, that whenever he spoke, um, it was an unimaginable pleasure, the pleasure of delicious peanut butter. And, uh, <laughs> that he, uh, um, that he only spoke so eloquently, uh, so that he so that he would uh, have the opportunity to um, to enjoy a tasty treat, uh, and and he inspired millions while um, he inspired millions while you know uh, having a snack. Uh, that's what I like to think. And peanut butter is such an American food, so I feel like that's very patriotic of him. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right? He wasn't... Yeah, exactly. If he was a, a snob, he would be uh, enjoying foie gras or something like that while, he, while, uh, uh, while delivering his stirring orations. Um, well, let's, uh, let's jump into the movie, guys. Pausing, pausing only to say that there's a whole lot going on on Overthinking It uh, in, terms of, in terms of media. You know, I looked, at our, um, I looked at our homepage the other day, and of the 10 articles in the first page of the homepage, uh, 80% of them were, uh, you know, a lot of the multimedia projects that, that we're doing now. And it's, it's really exciting. I mean, it's, a, it's, sort of a time, it's sort of a time for transition, and we're not abandoning text articles entirely. But, um, but a, lot of the, a lot of the momentum of the site is through these, these new channels uh, that are sort of multimedia, video and, and audio, uh, downloadable or streamable uh, content that, that uh, people seem to be enjoying. Uh, one of those is the 24 Recaps, which uh, Pete is, is hosting. Pete, um, how, uh, how are they going? What, what time of day are you up to now in your real-time Recaps of 24? Well, we've reached a dark, dark 3 p.m. where I have been abandoned in real time by Ryan, and I'm currently conducting the, the recaps solo uh, in, a, in, a, in a very uh, sort of stark situation. But yeah, no, it's, it's been great. We've, uh, we've coined some great terms. We've outlined some great patterns, and, and I, it's really just a, fun, it's just a fun thing to listen to and to make. So. It's, you know what? It's a, it's a show that gets to the heart of what I think overthinking it is about, right, which is that we like the things we like. The things we like. It's not just the prestige cable dramas that are that are worth overthinking, you know, anything that is fun. The things that are fun are fun for us. And this is how we this is how we like to enjoy them. Um, I read on Twitter that someone posted, why do I why do I love the recap of a show that I hate? Right when they're listening to twenty four <laughs> recap, uh, I think it was yeah, it was Earth Dog, right? I think yeah. he said it. Uh, and it's and the answer. What does it mean? I like hearing a recap of a show I can't stand. Right. And the answer is that we are putting in our work what we love about the thing that we're talking about. 
Um, that's fantastic. I'm, I'm glad to be playing one small part, uh, in, in your recap. Um, though, though, is that a, is that a trope of 24 where there are sort of characters off doing things, uh, and you, you catch them in, in one of those like oddly shaped split screen moments that, that happens on the show. You sort of catch the progress of their thing. I don't think you would ask that question if you didn't know the answer. <laughs> and the answer is yes. Is it not true, sir? Did I not do a great job? Yes, so, you did a great job. Yeah, I am, I am watching the, uh, the toddy cold brew, uh, you know, uh, cold brew system uh, drip. By drip, uh, make cold brew coffee in uh, in the twenty four recaps, and I which I, normally takes eleven hours, but there's only nine hours of the show left. <laughs> so what, what's going to happen? It's beep <laughs> boop. <laughs> <laughs> um, we also uh, we uh, wrapped up the Eurovision video series. If you don't subscribe to Overthinking It on YouTube, shame on you. Shame on you. You should go to YouTube right now, search for Overthinking It, and uh, subscribe to our channel to get the Overthinking It videos, because I think that that is a, uh, a channel for us that's going, to be, um, that's going to be expanding. And right now on that, we're going to do, we are uh, also on that channel, you can get, uh, in addition to our green screen videos, you can get uh, TV recaps, uh, including um, the Game of Thrones recaps on hiatus this week, but uh, Pete normally hosts those uh, as well. So, uh, Shayna, <laughs> Yo. you're a you're a uh, frequent recapper on the uh, the Game of Thrones recaps. Um, is it true that the more depraved our recaps get, the more realistic they are? Yes, in fact, it makes them better. It makes them um, better art. Just in general, yeah. right? Yeah, it's 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 only and it's only if you don't if you don't love uh, the fact that I am being tortured. Um, oh well, no spoilers, I guess. I was going to make We're an just analogy. Being realistic. <laughs> I was I was going to make an analogy to something going on on the show. But if you don't like that, I'm being tortured in the most brutal manner possible by Shayna on the recaps. Um, then you live in a bubble of first world privilege and and should uh, should really reexamine your. Um, should really re-examine your worldview because it's realistic that bad things have happened. Therefore, uh, bad things are good to put in TV shows. I can't um, stop myself from torturing you, Matt. <laughs> Just the way things are. And uh, and Matt, uh, we have nothing to wrap up with you. So <laughs> moving right along, um, what did you think? I'll uh, I'll I'll go to you first. Mm. What did you think of of X Men: Days of Future Past? What what um uh, what impressions were you left with? You know what? The impression that I had, and here's the thing, because I felt like this is a little counterintuitive, was one of sadness. I felt like it was a very sad movie. And here's the thing. It's, it's a movie about a, a very grim, uh, a post-apocalyptic uh, future. And doubly grim because it reminded me uh, more than anything else of, um, of, the, of the Terminator movie, of the last Terminator movie. The really bad one was Sam Worthington, which was Terminator Salvation. And not even Terminator colon Salvation, just Terminator Salvation, like the salvation of Terminators or by Terminator. Anyway, it had that sort of same art direction where everything is cloudy and nighttime all the time. Um, and then here's the, even at the, spoiler alert, by the way, for the whole movie, even when it ended supposedly happy, it really felt like that was more of a, afterlife more of a vision of heaven more of like a like a like these characters for like a reward of like a hard life fighting were like allowed to live in this like unreal parallel universe where like nothing bad had ever happened um and only wolverine knew that like they were living they were living in a false world like you know? lost yeah, yeah yeah it felt a lot like it the end of lost it sideways and, and I mean, I, I think part of that is that, like, in a very real sense, that this is a goodbye to that original cast. I don't think the producers intend to use them in the future. Um, and so that, like, it, it probably is not a coincidence that it had that sense of, like, and, like, everybody can smile and ride off into the sunset. And you can imagine them having any number of adventures that you'll never get to see. Huh. Um, and it, it seemed like a sad ending, even though it was supposed to be the happiest possible and an, unrealis- an unrealistically happy ending where the consequences of everything that had happened over the previous like three movies uh, were sort of wiped clean. It's, I mean, this gets, to, this gets to something interesting that was the, uh, um, what I'll call the, the Mulofsky fallacy. 
right? <laughs> Yo. Which is which is that th- there is a there is a tendency in uh, in you know the criticism that that we consume to to equate um, things things being a real drag, right? With things being quote unquote realistic. Uh, to equate like bad bad consequences or bad uh, things with with um, things being things being realistic, uh, I think what you 're saying is akin to that uh, but not totally identical to that because it, because what you seem to be saying is that they they sort of um, deny the premise right that is to say this this whole series seems to be predicated on kind of a on kind of a grim tone right it's it's it 's a, a gritty reboot. Right. But, um, I, you know, I don't know, but, but, uh, but they, they go into this like extraordinarily golden toned, uh, golden toned ending. Um, I guess, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is more metatextual, uh, than, than, um, having to do with the, the story that the movie is trying to tell. I feel like this movie is largely for the people like me who have a, a, a great fondness for Patrick Stewart and for Ian McKellen and have fond memories of the first X-Men movie, which is 14 years old, believe it or not, being like the first real, you know, the first big superhero movie, you know, of our, I feel like it was a turning point in the history of superhero movies that before that it was Batman all the way down. Right. And then, and then it was sort of that and Spider-Man hit at the same time. And it was this new era where it's like, now the special effects are there to make superhero movies. And I feel like this movie was, was this sort of a little bit of a, a thank you, but also a goodbye to the people like me who, who can't get enough of that original cast and the future belongs to Nicholas Holt, like it or not. I mean, I think it was an even bigger project than that in exactly what you're talking about. Because the movie is, I mean, it's also, it's a movie that's for a lot of people. It's also really for hardcore X-Men fans. This was the most fan service friendly superhero movie I've seen in a long time. Uh, and we'll talk about the after the credit scene too. But one of the cool things about this movie is if you watch through the movie, there are a lot of references to other movies about time travel that are worked into this movie. Right, and there's sort of nostalgic nods to like other movies that happened in the past about people traveling to the past, uh-huh. like when Beast walks into his his study and you see that they're watching the City on the Edge of Forever from the original Star Trek series playing on the TV, uh-huh. right? Or or like the Groundhog Day gag that happens to Hugh Jackman when he wakes up, right? Or like the the yeah. shot of skulls in the dystopian future that's like taken directly from Terminator, or Hugh Jackman in the mirror naked taken directly from Terminator. Like there's a sense that this is kind of, that that just sort of as any pass from any anything that passes from the past into the future, you know, you lose something, right? The, the past goes away. And time travel stories are sort of about reclaiming the past, but a time travel story in which you erase your own present by recreating a new present in the past, like this is something that was in the original story and is quite sublime. This idea in, in the original story, it wasn't even really clear whether it worked. Like there was no coda. It was like, okay, it just ended in like, what well, was 1980? It ended in 1980. It was like, we went back to 1980, we did what we came to do, and we have no idea whether it worked or not. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So, no, like, I think we should talk about the plan, because it it's a remarkable plan, if you think about it. That, like, because here's the thing that struck me about the plan, is that the best case scenario is that not only do we all die, we all never existed in the first place. Basically, the entirety of our lifetimes is a race from history. That's what they hope will happen. Yes. <laughs> and it's, it's crazy. I mean, and you, you have to accept the, the sort of prologue that the future is so, so bad that there's not like a single person alive who would argue that, that like it's worth preserving. It's like the lives of everybody left alive, which I mean, you know, not, not, to, not to overthink this. Well, actually, but like has there ever been a percentage proposed of like how many of the people on Earth have the mutant gene? Is it like 1%? Is it 0.1%? Oh, I actually don't know what per- percentage of people. I'm sure it's out there. What percentage? I'll I'll Google it while while it's, you talk about other stuff. Because it's like here's the thing, and I feel like they they for my taste they don't do enough of the world building at the beginning of the movie to establish exactly what has happened and what's gone wrong. Because what they've said is that all the mutants have been brought into camps, which is by, uh, by the way that that what I thought. Have you guys seen iRobot? I know you have, Pete. And there's a scene in iRobot where he's been trying to tell people that the uh, that the robots are going to run havoc and take over the world nobody believes him and then finally they do and there's a close-up of will smith where he just sort of shakes his head and he says i told you so does not even begin to cover it 
And that's what I felt like um, Magneto's first line in this movie was going to be. Because at the very beginning of the first X-Men movie, it, it, and, uh, 14 years ago, it began with the scene in a concentration camp. And the whole his whole fear in the movie is that if we don't fight, if we don't uh, act militantly, we will eventually be put in concentration camps and exterminated, which is precisely what happens. And the one thing that keeps him from gloating about it is because there, there's a suggestion that like it's it's sort of because of his militancy that he sort of provoked the other side to militancy. And if if he had sort of extended an olive branch, they might not have uh, been backed into this corner. Um, no, but I mean, I, I guess the, the question is is that how bad do things have to get before it's morally permissible to basically destroy the universe hmm. and start again? I mean, think about all the people who lived and died of natural causes during that time frame. Like, what about the you know, old couples? Like, what about an old, yeah, what about an old couple that met at, like, a duck pond when they were 12 and, like, grew up together and, like, had children and grandchildren and lived and loved and died? You know, what right do you have to erase them having ever existed? Although then at the same time, that raises a question of, you know, ontologically, do people who no longer exist exist? Right, like that. I mean, that's that's a really good question. When because the 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 calculus of utilitarianism becomes very different when you're capable of time travel, right? And and, yeah. and it's also because because like one of the things like uh, like Peter Singer, right? When he talks about vegetarianism, one of the arguments that's frequently brought up is like, well, if we didn't eat the cows, then there wouldn't be cows because there's no natural habitat for them. We don't care about them; they would all not exist. And so, isn't it better to be alive and tortured and consumed than to be not existing at all? And and Peter single will say well no you know by the tenets of utilitarianism you know where we care about pleasure we you know pleasure is good pain is bad suffering is bad non-existence is non-existence she, he's like Arya stark right it's like <laughs> i don't mean that's oh, that's a throwaway no spoilers on any of that stuff but it's like you know nothing is nothing um but if you have an infinite number of different timelines uh the question is well does only the current timeline exist do the other timelines exist right. are people in alternate timelines capable of pleasure and pain in the utilitarian calculus of your current timeline yeah I mean, you know, or even even to forget the big plan, the big plan to go back to 1973 and to look at uh, Kitty Pride's small plan at the beginning, when you see her with the small group with Bishop and the rest of the New Mutants, whose names I will never learn, um, and that her plan basically is like, like all the rest of you besides me are going to fight to the death and you're going to die, but in the process we're going to send somebody back and so that we were never here. So basically, you didn't die. But as far as those people are concerned, they they certainly die. it's not like they wake up from death and it's like oh I'm back alive again. It's more like there's like another you in some other universe that doesn't have to go through that unpleasant death that you're going through. And it's it's not it's not winning. It's not beating the robots by any conventional measure. You didn't outsmart them. You just sort of like shifted to you 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 tried again well you're you're raising a different you're raising an interesting question uh because you, the question is does is when you're talking about these uh timeline changes is a con- is a single consciousness associated with a single person is there a con- is there a space time continuity of consciousness right where if somebody goes back in time and turns spider-man's costume purple does red spider-man's consciousness now live inside of purple spider yeah i mean that's that and that's what this that's what this film says right like in the in the exposition at the beginning kitty pride explicitly says to wolverine uh you will be the only one if if you are successful uh you know you you'll kind of appear in a new reality and you'll be the only one who remembers it uh who remembers what happened right right but presumably but that that doesn't quite answer the question of whether then well does kitty pride the kitty pride that wolverine knows and loves is that kitty pride still going to live and 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 exist or is it going to be a simulacrum kitty pride right like a philosophical zombie kitty pride well it wouldn't be a zombie necessarily because it might have a subjectivity right but i mean that's not a question that has an answer but it's interesting because this is a pretty different this idea of uh i've referred to it in some of my conversations as weakest link style time travel because you have to bank it like you you go back and you make all the changes right but none of them uh, affect uh the timeline until you collapse the waveform by waking up in the present mm-hmm. right and then you bank all the changes and they all happen at once right. so like it's not like back to the future where they sort of gradually happen and it's not like bill and ted where they've like already happened right like it's like hey we should remember to put a tape recorder behind this couch later oh we did that's great right like that sort of thing um 
But yeah, I mean, we could get lost in the time. Tra- we could pull out. We should pull out the Looper uh, conversation of the diner where he's like, "Well, it's not. So we're not going to." It's not. Let's just not get into it. Oh, I so, will correct so, something you said before. Something you said before was that this movie wipes out everything that happened in previous three movies. There are actually five movies that are affected by this movie. There's the three X movies. Then there's the Wolverine, right? Which yeah. happened, right? Because it happens between well, the events of well, in the first Wolverine movie, right? Where he gets well, his powers, that, which is, I think, the late 70s. That's what's interesting, is that this movie doesn't use time travel to make sure that Wolverine Origins never happened. It uses not caring about it. Because in Wolverine, Wolverine Origins starts before the events of uh, the early timeline. And, and he meets Stryker in Vietnam. It, it actually, like, this movie highly suggests that Wolverine Origins never even had. Exactly. points. Exactly. It's just like you know, Wolverine Origins. Yeah, we don't like it. It's non-canon. Yeah, we don't, care about it yeah, we, don't we don't recognize it anymore. <laughs> and I think that there have been sort of nods in that general direction in like some of the other properties, but uh, but it seems to be final, which I do appreciate. I appreciate that it's not just the carry, the you know, the diegetic erasure of history. There's also non-diegetic erasure. Of history. <laughs> So, I mean, let me ask a question that's not a that's not a like, let's puzzle out the exact uh, world building rules of time travel in this movie. And and let me ask what we get narratively um, by having uh, by having a future timeline where, you know, they're guarding uh, all the mutants whose names I don't know are are guarding against the Sentinels while. Uh, Patrick Stewart, Ian McKellen, at, at you know Ellen Page and uh, Hugh Jackman, uh, while you know all the the A listers right are in the um, well, I guess Halle Berry is outside too, uh, but while while they're all in the inner sanctum traveling through time, right? Like, what does that what does that get us? Let me propose a different movie that begins on uh, uh, Nicholas Holt, you know, uh, sweeping the floor in the mansion, right? And uh, suddenly Wolverine bursts in, and, and it proceeds, you know, it proceeds in a timeline linear fashion from there. Um, other, than, other than the opportunity for cool CGI, right? Like, what do you think it gives us narratively as a work of storytelling that, uh, that you have this, this split timeline thing, um, split timeline thing going on? I don't know. Shana, did you, uh, did you think about that at all? Well, I guess from a screenwriting standpoint, it in a weird way puts a timer on it because you have Kitty Pride in the future and she's like, I can only hang on for so long and the robots are coming. So, but it's, yeah. I, I feel like there's a term for this that like Roger Ebert came up with a long time ago, but I don't remember what it is, where you have um, a timer going on in the future that somehow affects the past which doesn't really make any sense because by the way, you guys notice it's not a one-to-one relationship no not, no, a, yeah, not exactly. at all because they're not exception rules going on right where it's like 10 times as long in the past yeah other, otherwise they would have you know she would have had to take at least one hand away to eat right unless she's being like spoon-fed her meals by by magneto and and uh professor x right well, clearly that's it's ice she was man. that face oh, that's ice the man, time yeah. she's like uh, I have to pee so bad. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, was it like an hour? What, yeah, Kitty, just let it li- just let it go. You're among friends here. You know, no one will hold it against well, you. Yeah, the world's in, in about the future, to end. Was it like real time um, vis-a-vis us, the audience? Um, like when we're watching an hour of the movie, does an hour pass in the future time? But in the past, it's like a month. I don't know. Anyway, that's something else. And by the way, why why do um, Wolverine uh, and the rest only show up now in the awesome jet? Right? Like, why don't the scrappy little band of of Ellen Page mutants have an awesome jet? Uh, why are they running? Right? Like, like uh, you know, uh, Patrick Stewart, Hugh Jackman, and and Ian McKellen are not running. They're flying around in their awesome jet. Okay, so to answer your question, <laughs> to answer your question about what do we get narratively from having the two timelines coexist, right? I mean, it informs the characters in interesting ways because, uh, like all, like most Hollywood action blockbusters, this is about 
this, the, we start from the assumption that the audience lives in an existential wasteland with no sense of self, and we hope to give them <laughs> some sort of reason to feel special, right? Like, that's what almost all of these movies are about, where it's like, hey, there's a prophecy, there's destiny, like, you're going to be special, like, you're really, what you do matters, right? Like, uh, either what you do matters or what you do doesn't matter, but you're significant because someone else has decided what's going to happen to you in some way. Um, and so the, the movies, you know, because we're not really, you know, because it's not politically correct to address issues of metaphysics in a more mature sort of way in these kinds of movies, or perhaps just the audience wouldn't wouldn't deal with it. It's the most sort of like ecumenic. I guess it's the way that you can that plays in the global audience is really a big part of it. It's like um, you know, it's like okay, these characters have to find some sort of reason to do the thing that they're doing in their lives. And I feel like the idea of confronting the characters with a possible future that might potentially happen to them and charging them with the possibility of changing it is a pretty cool narrative thing, right? Like uh, it's similar to the um, it's similar to the movie. Uh, oh gosh, in time. Right? Was that that Justin Timberlake movie where currency is time and this idea that you're like, you waste your time by wasting your life, right? And you're sort of like committing right. suicide. Um, oh, what was the other? Everybody's life is metered and you just drop dead at a certain age, which I think is like 28 or 29, yeah. which is kind of hilarious. And yeah. then, but like, literally, you could buy, like, the rich people just buy infinite amounts of, of youth and life, and yeah. poor people just drop dead. Yeah, but clearly this is a metaphor for like the experience of your own time and spending your own time, and also exploitation, capitalist exploitation, where people's time is used for the benefit of other people rather than for their own benefit, right? And so like there's a real story there, and here there is a real story. I mean, you know, Professor X. I mean, think a bit if the think about the movie as a story about heroin addiction. Right? Like, <laughs> Professor X is addicted to heroin. He sees only a totally dark, painful, meaningless future for himself, so that he he like it, you know he. he literally anesthetizes himself. He literally goes into a narcotic to get away. Well, not literally. He figuratively goes into a narcotic. He literally goes into a walking medicine. But, um, but and then he's confronted with the possibility of what might potentially happen. Right? It's like, well, hey, you have a particular sensory experience of your life, but there's an external experience of your life that, that you know, you might not think is meaningful because you're a solipsist, but maybe you should open your eyes. Like, if you think of it that way, as Professor X's telepathy versus his heroineness as sort of a battle of solipsism versus the problem of other minds, uh-huh. right? And it's like, okay, the only thing that exists for you is your own pain, right? Well, what would you do to mitigate that pain? Well, I would, I would hook myself up to an experience machine. I would take a bunch of drugs. That's what I would do, right? Because if all that matters is my own feelings, then other people don't matter. And then this is a question of like, well, what if other people do matter? What if there's a future? What if you could take pride in this future? Would that pleasure be worth something to you relative to the pleasure that you're feeling from not having to listen to all the voices in your head? But isn't right? it like, funny? Interesting. Yep. Sorry, Pete. But isn't it funny, though, that the way he gets there is he talks to himself and tells himself how awesome he is and how awesome he's going to be in the future? Like, you have that, uh, the moment I like to call the Charles in charge, uh, Charles moment at the end where he's like in his own mind, more or less. So, it, yeah. I don't know if, how it's that like informs the, your Matthew, point. It's the Matthew McConaughey version of Alcoholics Anonymous, where your higher power is you 10 years from now. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> that time is a flat circle, right? Indeed, indeed. Time is indeed a flat circle. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, and it works for everybody. It works for Magneto. It certainly works for Wolverine, where he's, like, looking back at his past, and there's moments where he doesn't remember, and things, you know, and all that other stuff. It, you know... This idea of mystique, the, the sort of yeah. mystique as the precious object... Right, is this when she exists in the past but doesn't exist in the present uh, in some way, right? Like that kind of changes the frame of mind. I think there's a lot of cool things that happen in this movie because you get to juxtapose the, the yeah. current narrative with the huh. past. Yeah, can I ask you guys a question, by the way? Um, yeah. Obviously, getting Magneto is a huge part of the plot machinery in the early stages of the movie. They got to go to the Pentagon. Um, why do they need Magneto? Uh, because, because Professor X feels like he know Professor X feels like he can't convince Mystique to not assassinate Trask without Magneto's help because Magneto uh, is uh, is basically really influential over Mystique at this point in her life. I mean, the one moment where where uh, Magneto and Professor X are talking and it's in the past, but they're talking and uh, and Professor X says to Magneto. Um, you know, you're, you're inside my head, right? And, and Magneto says, that's not my power, 
right? Yeah. And there's this big unspoken thing of, well, what is his power? His power is attraction. He attracts people to him, right? He's magnetic. So, like, Mystique is attracted to him, you know, like, drawn towards him. Uh, and, and in that sense, he's, he's not... Magneto isn't just about flinging metal pieces around. He, like, coalesces people around himself. He builds movements, right? Like, he, you know, he builds asteroids, but that's something entirely different. Um, yeah, I believe yeah, in the comic book, he founds his own nation, right? Yo, yeah, totally. He's, totally. like, a political leader. Yeah, 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 and the and the wonderful island of Gen- Genosha is that it? Genosha. <laughs> oh yeah. man, jeez. Well, I mean, isn't it so uh, like uh, such a pointed symbol then that he grabs a, a whole stadium and puts it around himself, you know, as if to uh, bring people in to like watch him be like, "Look at me, I am the one you should be listening to." And that, that's the same uh, point in the movie where he's. <laughs> On all of the televisions in the world. Right? Yeah. yeah. You know that at 20th Century Fox headquarters, there's just like a notepad with just a list of big metal things that he could lift? <laughs> and they're just like, uh, let's see, we did Submarine. We did Bridge in, uh, in X-Men 3. Um, yeah, oh, Stadium is mostly metal. It was like either that or like a cruise ship. <laughs> and they're like, no, we did, we did a boat, we did a nautical thing in the last movie. What? And like, you could almost figure out my process of elimination. Like, what is left for him to lift in the next movie? He already. Did and then the, the, the whole plot will be based around. Yeah, but and even though that's not magnetic. Yeah. No, yeah, that's true. It's, they didn't lift it up. Yeah, well, if, but, if, if Disney, if Disney hadn't bought Lucasfilm, right, and all those uh, Star Wars movies were still Fox movies, could have done a whole Death Star, right? Done a, done a crossover, where he, you know. But but I I also think that this is a case where Professor X and Magneto are such good friends in the future that they of course assume that they're going to work together in the past, and then by changing the timeline, they discover, oh, right, remember how Magneto used to be? He wasn't really that nice a guy. And this is kind of a relationship between the present and the past, right? Like, this, this way of the mem- memory and rose-colored glasses and also legacy, right, and the sort of unintended consequences of our actions when we consider ourselves to be a different person than we are. I think, ultimately, releasing Magneto turns out to have been, like, a pretty terrible thing right? like because he's like probably going to go through a bunch of bad evil things right now involving robots of some kind right. other kinds of Although, but i think the interesting thing about the movie is that like can you say that he is wrong like we know for a fact where the future is going yeah and he's his worst fears come come uh true so that yeah. like in a way that that the argument that started in the first movie between professor s Benito is over and then professor x sort of hand waves that away by being like just because we've stumbled doesn't it basically he's like well just because it happened in one reality Maybe if we literally erase the whole universe and try again, it'll go a separate way. And I guess, I guess in that case, he's proven correct because we do see the uh, the future in the other universe. But it is it is kind of fun, and I think that the younger Professor X reacts to it at some point when he's talking to himself. He's like, "You still believe?" Because he can't believe that, like, even knowing that Magneto is right, that like, why are you still? Why don't you refuse to back down? Yeah. Um, I mean, when Magneto is written well, Magneto's right. Magneto yeah, is a Zionist. No. He's a I actually, Holocaust I actually thought, Yeah, no, he, he totally is. I actually thought yeah. one of, the, one of the, the most surprising things in the movie that I quite like is that when me, Magneto finally uh, gets to Mystique, his first thing is like, well, we got to kill her. We got to kill her right now. Because he's absolutely right. Literally, yeah. the fate of the whole world is at stake, and he's completely right. And there's nobody, not even Wolverine, who's seen the future and knows how bad it is, has thought about that. Yeah. Like, it wouldn't even have occurred to him that like, Mag- Magneto is that pragmatic. Yeah, yeah, totally. And Magneto has seen some dark things. That's very true. Yeah, I mean, in a way, Magneto is the only one who really embrace, who really takes the situation to heart and embraces the logic of it, which is that like we need to do what's necessary. Yeah. Um, although, like, of course, inadvertently, like, brings it, bring, almost brings it to fruition. That's kind of a thing that, like, so if we want to draw a parallel between X Men and Harry Potter, right? Which, which I think is entirely appropriate. Um, one of the he, if you think of the Xavier School for Talented Youth as Hogwarts, and you think of Magneto as he who shall not be named, it lines up pretty clear, cleanly in terms of the relationships between Dumbledore and Professor X and all this stuff. But the difference is that the, the X-Men relationship is a little bit more balanced, right? Because it is, it is not a necessary natural thing that there be a like fancy, old-timey, like, you know, like nostalgic school, prep school, where children go for boarding lessons in yeah. superpowers. Right? Like, it is not a necessary thing that that exists. That exists just because of the happenstance of history and tradition. That, like, there's a prep school, 
right? And, like, Harry Potter treats the prep school as the state of nature and, like, the person who would disrupt this system and use magic for the things that it's actually capable of doing sort of on its own terms. You know, that's this aberration that needs to be kind of flushed out of the system. Whereas Magneto is much more comfortable confronting the truly disruptive reality. It's very French Revolution. It's very much like, you know, Professor X is like, well, there's some great things about the aristocracy, right? Like, there's a great diversity of, of uh, different kinds of experience and beautiful people, and we don't have to, like, execute people that we don't like. We can talk to them and learn from them, right? And Magneto is like, get the guillotine, you know, like, you know, viva la France, liberté, galate, mutanité, right? Like, uh... You know. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. I know, I know, I know. Um... But no, I mean, you, you, you make very good points. Like, the question, is Magneto wrong? I mean, it's kind of a character study movie to an extent. It's about... I mean, the, like, happened- the movie will never resolve that. I, yeah. All the movies, um, you know, like, they've got to whip out the chessboard and they've got to have a discussion. And the movie's never going to, like, weigh in 100%. And cannot, in fact, because I think both, both are right and both are wrong. Right. In a way that Professor X is an idealist and he's a dreamer and he doesn't, you know, at the very end of the the first X-Men movie, um, you know, Magneto is like, you know, like, aren't you afraid that like one day they're going to come to your school and they're going to drag you away in the middle of the night, which actually happens at the beginning of the second movie. And so Magneto's fears are not paranoid delusions. They're completely realistic. And I guess, you know, Xavier just sort of like doesn't care. He's just sort of like willing to roll the dice and hope that like. And hope that, like, even though he's probably wrong most of the time, that, like, one day he won't be. Yeah. So there's one interesting thing about the story in terms of everyone's perspective that, that uh, complicates it. I'd love to go through the, the historical versions of this story to, to put it in context, if I may, if I that, may jump to that. Yeah, that would be wonderful because it, I, I was sort of wondering about the comics continuity and the, the sort of other incarnations of this property. So uh, if yeah. you can shed some light on that, that would be fantastic. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So the thing I wanted to, to lead into this is there's always some reason in addition to hunting down mutants that the Sentinels are bad, right? Because the Sentinels have to be bad for everybody to justify doing this. It answers the question we're talking about before. The X-Men can't just be saving themselves. They have to be saving the world, right? So in this story, they raise the possibility that the Sentinels figure out which humans might potentially give birth to mutants or have mutants come, like, you know, several generations down the line and start killing those people with the implication with the sort of, like, shattered New York skyline we see at the beginning of the movie that the Sentinels have, like, wiped out much of the human population. Yeah, that's what I was getting at at the beginning, because if it really is all the Sentinels are doing are wiping out mutants, then it seems remarkably sort of Magneto-esque to be like, well, we got to erase the timeline to prevent this. Yes, because like yes, it, yes. It, it, it takes all the people that the Sentinels uh, you know, don't care about and leave alone are out of the equation. But then like, you, you have to assume because of the, the, you know, the, the destruction that we see in the very opening shot that like almost everybody is sort of implicated in this and almost everybody is destroyed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so, but if you go, that's actually, it's also an interesting contrast because it says that Peter Dinklage, that uh, Trask is wrong, that mutants aren't, the humans aren't Neanderthals, because the humans are, they aren't going to, the mutants and the humans aren't uh, different branches of the same genetic tree. The mutants are descendants of the humans, right? The idea, the sort of implication of the Sentinels killing everybody is that most humans will eventually become mutants, right? It's sort of hinted at in the movie. But casting that aside, in the original story, which was published all the way back in 1981 by Marvel, which, by the way, means it predates the first Terminator movie by three years. So if you want to think about, well, this story is so similar to Terminator, might kind of be the other way around. In the original story, what the Sentinels do is they hunt down uh, and exterminate all the mutants in the United States, and then they decide that the most efficient way of killing the mutants in other countries is to take over the American nuclear weapons arsenal and launch a nuclear strike against the entire rest of the world. And that's the event that precipitates the need to go back in time, to stop that from happening. Right? Um, and it's different. It's, it's different. Kitty Pride is the one who goes back. Uh, Rachel Summers, who is Cyclops' daughter and Jean Grey's daughter, is involved. She has the power to send Kitty Pride back, but she goes through the same mechanism where she goes back into her previous consciousness. Um, and it's, you know, it's, 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 it's similar in a lot of ways, right? Now, the, the people in the internet have talked about this previous version of the story. One version that I don't think people have talked about enough is the 1993 version of the story, which was in the X-Men animated series. And you know that this movie is influenced by the X-Men, the animated series version, because Bishop is in it. Bishop the Black Guy, who was in the beginning of the movie, one of the mutants that's name you can't remember, is actually the hero of the 
cartoon, the most famous and well-known cartoon version of this story, which was a big two-part arc uh, during the height of the popularity of the 90s X-Men comic uh, cartoon, right? And in that story... Bishop uses, like, a bracelet that sends him back in time. He doesn't use, like, the whole mental thing. They get rid of that whole thing because it would be a little bit complicated for children to understand. But in that story, the Sentinels uh, elevate one of their own to sort of leader status, and he be- his name is Nimrod, and he becomes, like, a tyrant, right? And then he ter- eventually turns the Sentinels against humanity in sort of a, in a Terminator kind of way, right? Where it's like the robots become so powerful by hunting the mutants that they then must, like... They're, they've become self-aware, and they need to know what to do with themselves. So they decide to kill humanity also. So in that case, the, the, uh, the mutants turn on people. That whole thing has another one where they don't know which X-Men is going to assassinate the guy. And so it's a detective story to find out which X-Men is a traitor. Um, so it's a slightly different story in a lot of ways. But I want to point out, because Bishop being in the movie shows that this, that this is like these, are, these stories are linked to one another. Um, but yeah, there's also a whole bunch of other comics where they tell stories that are based on the Days of Future Past timelines, because they're just such a compelling, compelling story. But yeah, the main point is that there has to be some other reason why the Sentinels are bad. And every telling of the story figures out a different reason why the Sentinels are bad, other than that they're killing the X-Men. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. actually, you know, it occurred to me that like part of the reason the Sentinels are bad is because of the the context in American history that they're plunked in the middle of. That like one very interesting decision the movie makes is to set the whole thing around this sort of dark time in American history, this sort of post Vietnam, the, the the very eve of our surrender, or the you know the Paris Peace Accords, because that that's. It seems to be coincidental to the plot they're trying to tell. The story that they're trying to tell is as Mystique, uh, you know, kills this guy, is captured in the process, and that's what sets everything off. It could have happened anytime, anywhere, but they chose to set it right there to make a juxtaposition. And then, then I think even more critically, what happens afterwards with with Nixon's presidency and him being like, "We need to show the world that we can win the next war," that causes him to overreact. And sort of like you know, uh, move in this sort of fascist direction. And I, I think I think it's it's this movie is trying to say something about like what the Sentinels mean about like what our what our country became post Vietnam, the direction that like we took to sort of like uh, make up for this sort of emasculating, you know, this, this sort of this sort of uh, I don't know. Anyone else seeing this? Yeah, sure. I think I think that you can see. At least, so, okay, so looking at Vietnam, not necessarily through, the, through a perspective that claims to place you in the experience of Vietnam. This isn't like Apocalypse Now or Full Metal Jacket, right? This is historicized Vietnam. This is like the Vietnam of, it was a quagmire and it was a turning point for our country. This is like history book Vietnam. That is often seen as a turning point between a, an optimistic young United States and a grizzled older United States, right? There's like a bright timeline and there's a dark timeline. And so the country is sort of looking back at itself and wondering what it has become at the same time as all the characters in the X-Men movie are looking back at themselves, right? And we're looking back at them and seeing who they are and what they've become, right? So there's, there's parallels there, and, and it's, you know, it's part of the aesthetic. Uh, I, think, I think it's a pretty brilliant choice. I think it's a pretty great choice. Also, you get to put it in Paris, and it's a shame that Magneto didn't get to fling the Eiffel Tower around because that's totally what I thought was going to happen. Yeah, it uh, seems yeah. so obvious. But... Yeah, yeah. Which I guess lead, leads us to believe, like, like what 1980s historical event are the X-Men somehow going to be embroiled in in the next one? I hope it's Live Aid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Feed the... Oh, no! <laughs> Do yeah, like, they know it's Like, we are the world. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. has to, like, impersonate George Michael and get into that recording session. Oh, yeah. There's got to be a Michael Jackson cameo in this movie at some point. In the next one? Or Michael, yeah, Jackson's Michael Jackson is definitely going to be revealed to be a mutant in yeah. sort of, like, Men in Black style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. They already did that in Men in Black. Huh. Yeah. They, they can yeah. do it again. It's a whole new generation to make the Michael Jackson as an alien reference. Is this going to be like the Superman Four of X Men, where they try to stop the Soviets and the and the like post detente United States from like launching nuclear weapons at each other? Is it sort of like a Reagan era X Men? Apparently, do you think? it's going to be more like the Mummy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that we should talk about the after credit scene now. Yeah. So uh, what was that? You see, I'm not uh, versed in in the the uh, Marvel universe. So what yeah. what is no, the? 
I think that's where we should start. That it's an after the credit scene that literally no, unless you are well versed in the Marvel universe, it is completely meaningless to you. And I think, I think that alone is an interesting discussion. Is an interesting distinction to make, as opposed to like revealing something of like what Magneto is up to, sort of like after his escape, like what his next plot might be, to sort of like make this reference to something which means something if you know what it is, and means nothing if you're not in the now. Yeah, it it, lead, it reminds me of something I read about the Legend of Zelda last week, where in the original version of, of Zelda, Link started with the sword, but uh, Miyamoto decided to have him not start with the sword and put the sword in a cave because he wanted the game to be really confusing so that the children would talk to each other about it and share information. Right? The idea is that we, we want to spur conversation. We want to force you to talk to your nerd friends because not only will they explain to you what this after the credit scene is, they will communicate to you their excitement about it because they are probably very excited because the thing that we showed to your nerd friends is extremely exciting which is very true um it definitely gave me huge nerd chills which i haven't had in a while although a lot of these post-credit scenes are pretty good right like uh um i guess like you know the the one after samuel L. jackson ones are always pretty solid although the marvel ones are running a little thin these days but yo, should we go ahead because i watched it and i was like what is this what is this and then a couple seconds later it hit me i was like wow it was and i looked around because i was watching the movie by myself and i was looking around for someone to talk to about it and and, and i just saw a bunch of blank faces of yeah strangers. I mean, when I saw, I assumed, I assumed that, that is the exit that, the present day, and I assumed that like the next thing would be like you know breaking news from like you know NBC News pyramids reassembled in the desert. <laughs> so okay, so but apparently it's not supposed to be uh, like you know concurrent with the events of the movie. No, no, and in fact there are no cameras at this time. Is it basically? Is there a Stargate tie-in at some point? Oh, there's got to be. There's totally a Stargate tie-in. Um, so, so the story is that gentleman uh, there is one. Ant- I'm sorry, Pete. That fellow was no gentleman. <laughs> what? Just because he was building pyramids with his hands? I guess he's a blue-collar worker. <laughs> he's a mason. He's a free mason. But nobody else is free. Not in his world. Uh, that was a gentleman whose uh, uh, comic book imaginary na- language name is Ensabanur, but his uh, comic book name, his actual name, is Apocalypse. Uh, he is a, the probably the most uh, villainous x-men villain he is he is the he is the reason why spider-man has to fight like electro in the latest spider-man movie because x-men have these great villains and spider-man doesn't magneto uh, apocalypse is one of the great comic book villains he's really really totally sweet um his story is that he was born in ancient egypt um and he was raised by nomads because his family abandoned him because he was he was weirdly colored and looked deformed so they left him to die in the desert but he was raised by an by a warrior nomad tribe that believed in uh, in culling the weak, right? Uh, and they named him En Sabanur, the first one, because he is the first of his kind, the first mutant uh, to exist. And uh, he is he is by virtue of both being a very powerful mutant and also discovering alien technology, because it turns out that the pharaohs were also aliens. <laughs> um, that he killed a pharaoh who turned out to be an alien, took his alien technology, which gave him like a robot suit and immortality, uh, and uh, he has the power to manipulate matter, uh, both his own body and metamorphose himself and also matter around him. Um, and yes, and he, he, uh, he seeks to, dis- to kill uh, all of the weak things in the world, all of the weak people, and he enlists uh, four horsemen in his task, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, who are seen in the distance over his shoulder in the post credit scene. You see these four figures on horseback. Right. Um, and, and so one of the coolest things that Apocalypse does is he kind of seduces uh, mutants, powerful mutants, from usually from the heroic side of things, onto his side and imbues them with great power to make them horsemen of the Apocalypse so that he can uh, tell them to go kill people. The most famous of these is Angel, who becomes Archangel and gives him metal wings, uh, make, which makes him an awesome character rather than a totally lame character. <laughs> so we're going uh, to get Ben Foster back, right? Maybe, perhaps. Perhaps they'll get no, us. We're, de- we're definitely not. We're getting David Boreanis, man. <laughs> yes. 
Let's <laughs> actually settle for that. That would be pretty sweet. That would be pretty sweet. I think at one point Hulk becomes a horseman of the apocalypse named War. Uh, and it's just... Yeah, that uh, sounds about right. A, yeah, there's war, there's death, there's pestilence. But yeah, the point is that he's... Like, whereas Magneto is... Uh, he was created because Magneto was made into a good guy. And so they're like, well, we need another Magneto. Let's make another one. And so they made this guy who... Whereas Magneto is kind of a, you know, a sort of separatist, Zionist, kind of like uh, Malcolm X to Charles Xavier's Martin Luther King, in accordance with the historical view of those two people as taught in elementary schools, not necessarily with how they actually were. Um, Apocalypse is a little bit more of kind of he's, – he's more of kind of a genocidal guy in general, just like – he isn't particularly favorable of mutants over people. Uh, he just kind of likes to kill people who he perceives as weak, rather they're, whether they're mutants or individuals, and he is uh, – when he's not in some form of cryosleep, uh, conquering the world is a rather trivial matter for him Listen, if he is not Pete, opposed. Pete, all I really care is that can he be played by The Rock? <laughs> he could be, and it would have been awesome. Uh, unfortunately, now that we've seen him, he probably can't be played. No, by I think I think I've actually read online that like that is supposed to be like the teenage in the past version of him. Doesn't necessarily look like that in the 1980s. Oh man, if, if, if sort, Rock- sort of the same way, like we sort of saw Thanos in the Avengers, but like that's probably not what Thanos is going to look like when he shows up in the Avengers three or whatever it is. Man, how much would you love to see just like The Rock as Apocalypse just? disassemble Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. Just I want like to see the, the Rock as the sort of Scorpion King special effects from the end of The Mummy 2, where he's like sloppily uh, superimposed on top of a scorpion body <laughs> um, and fight Hugh Jackman that way. Oh, man. You want to see The Rock fight all the X-Men at the same time and beat yeah. all of them? Because that's what Apocalypse does. Well, can I get one of my X-Men pet peeves out there? That, like, to me, the one of the big things that you go to the X-Men comic books for is the idea of the team-up. Is the idea that these guys are powers, and they train together, and they work together, and they use teamwork to beat stronger opponents. And I feel like very se- these movies almost never do this well that the movies tend to separate them and set up a bunch of one-on-one battles and this movie is no exception that like i don't really feel like the x-men are like working together and fighting side by and you know what people are very harsh on the third x-men movie which definitely there are problems with it but i there are parts of it i really like and one part of it is the idea that the x-men are going to roll out together and they're going to stand side by side and they're going to work as a team to defeat a superior force I felt like the X-Men in the future timeline, the dark timeline, fighting the Sentinels, was I, – because I, I remember seeing, watching that scene and thinking this is the first time that they've done this well. It's the first time they've done a real X-Men fight where they combine their powers together, right? Because it's like Blink creates the hole that the guy – and then Iceman yeah. like shoots the ice through it, right? And the guy jumps through it to dodge the guy or he like uses it to use his karate powers or whatever. Like it was just – there was just really cool combination of powers but only in that first sequence. It doesn't come back at any point other, elsewhere in the movie. I mean the last stand has like the fastball special which is pretty cool even if it's yeah. ultimately useless um, and a bunch of other cool stuff. I just love Kelsey Grammer as a as beast especially when he's in the suit talking to the president he's like oh mr president we need to have a we have a situation and he sits down he's got the big blue mutton chops uh, i just yeah, it's just so great. funny oh man it's just so funny um but yeah they have they have yet to do that well very often it's a tough thing to pull off um, it is i mean i think that's part of what made the avengers so special is that like when they fight together it really seems like they are working as a team and they have like a chemistry and they interact yeah yeah exactly um yeah. So, guys, I've uh, while uh, you've been podcasting, I've been going back in time to episode thirteen uh, to tell us that we have to, uh, or actually back to uh, back to episode one to tell Belinky and I that we have to record a podcast, that we have to start a podcast. So, if we have three hundred and change episodes of this podcast, it means I was successful. Uh, I'm back now. What did I miss? And anything- Hi, Matt. It's great to have you back on the Harvey! podcast. Hey, <laughs> hey, you seem really more excited to see me than usual. Oh, what a what a wonderful thing to you know. To my have- voice used to be less scratchy before I did three hundred episodes of your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Harvey, I know you're a mutant. What, uh, I mean, what's your mutant power? <laughs> Hey guys, I'm back. I had to go back and kill Harvey Firestone. <laughs> Actually, wait, no. Oh no, he's acting on Broadway in two different musicals. <laughs> what have I done? What have I done? How can he even do that? Does he run back and forth between the theaters or does he just project his consciousness back through time? Hey, Matt, I killed Fenzel in the past. I'm back. <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> hey, I broke the time machine. I'm back. <laughs> wow, uh, this is this is like primer. This uh, primer. This isn't. Uh, <laughs> oh my god, you should watch Primer. Oh my god. Oh my god, you should watch Primer. It's such a good time travel movie. Oh my god. Who am I? Who am I? You should watch Primer. You should watch Primer. I'm everybody. everybody. Freaking everybody says that. Sorry. I feel like I need to stop talking for a while because Shana hasn't been able to get a word in it. <laughs> I, I don't love primer. That, that's what I got. That's a that's an unpopular opinion, Puffin. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <well>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is uh this has been the X-Men Days of Future Past podcast. Um that is the sound of someone banging on their microphone. Uh that's probably and- me. Sorry. I like to see Shana's just sitting there just being like, mah, 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 just hitting the top of the microphone with their hand. <laughs> that's what I do. Uh, so, uh, so we'll be back next week. You can contact us if you want to uh, share with us your uh, your thoughts about X-Men Days of Future Past or any questions you have for the panel at podcastoverthinkingit.com or 203-285-6401. That's 203-285-6401. Uh, but you know what? If you have things that you want to say, why not go to the show notes for this uh, for this episode and leave your thoughts there so that you can talk with, with other people. Team up uh, like the X-Men. You know, uh, and and together we can overthink harder than than any of us could overthink separately. Um, if you like this podcast and you don't subscribe to it via iTunes or whatever podcatcher you use, uh, you can find iTunes or RSS feed links in the show notes for this episode and for all of our other shows. We would like you to subscribe to all of them and get them downloaded automatically uh, so that no overthinking it ever takes place without your being aware of it. Uh, you could be missing out on all kinds of great overthinking, uh, including the 24 recaps, the Game of Thrones recaps, the TFT podcast, uh, which will have one Peter Fenzel guest hosting on it in a couple of episodes. I'm excited about that, Pete. I'm excited about it as well. I, I, I hope that my musical acumen shall uh, fill your considerable ecumenical boots. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, as long as you're for real, that's that's all right, Pete. Um, the uh, the TFT podcast and this, the flagship Overthinking It podcast, we'd like you to subscribe to them all and automatically download them. Wouldn't that be Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be a, a great future? I in fact want to go back uh, go back a year and tell you to do it in the past. So uh, you know, download some old episodes and see see what's going on. Uh, and there will be new episodes uh, next week and every week. Until then, you can visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. Anti-time, Wolverine! Anti-time! <laughs> we have to go back to the future. Uh, it's a, no it's a, it, it, it's a shame Mark wasn't here because we could have done a whole podcast just about this movie and Terminator. Uh-huh. Maybe it will happen in the future <laughs> or the past. Dun 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 dun. <laughs>